Trouble Magazine would like to thank its sponsors. Ararat Gallery Tama, Bendigo Living Art Space, Fox Galleries Melbourne, Manningham Gallery, Swan Hill Regional Art Gallery, Wangaratta Art Gallery and Western Sydney University. Thanks for your support. What if a conversation could change your mind about yourself and about the world? What if a conversation could one day lead to a change in government policy? I'm Dr Mark Halloran and you're listening to Deep Trouble. And it's time for Deep Trouble here on 94.9 Main FM and I have Mark Halloran in the studio once again. It's great to be here, Steve. Isn't it fun? Yeah, it certainly is. We've got some great interviews in the third series, including the one tonight, Peter Singer, a legend in the world of ethics and moral philosophy. The main point, I suppose, of the exercise was that he is really pushing his foundation, The Life You Can Save. And there is a website, and a very good website, and you can get a lot of information from it, can't you? Yes. The book has been released as an e-book um, mm. to promote the foundation and the idea that effective altruism can potentially wipe out severe poverty around the world. We know that $130 billion is currently spent on aid at the moment, but according to analysts, if $60 billion was effectively spent, then we could wipe out poverty within one year. So the implication is that a lot of aid money is being wasted? Yes. Yes, it's ineffective. But a lot of it is around the fact that there isn't very much in terms of the NGOs and the charities involved in trying to eradicate poverty. There's not very much research in terms of the way that they do it in terms of scientific efficacy. And traditionally, that's been the case. So effective altruism is about finding where you can invest your money, mm. where it will have the greatest effect. And there's a website called Give Well, which will direct you towards organisations, effective altruistic organisations that will do the most good. Some people, and I'm one of them, might feel a bit guilty listening to this interview because, well, it really made me question whether I really am a generous person. Right. I went down to Melbourne on the weekend and I passed very many people sleeping on the streets of Melbourne. The majority of people have learnt not to see them. Do you think this lack of generosity is a major problem in our societies today? The research on this shows that if you give, and some of this research is outlined in The Life You Can Save, which is if you if you gave people a story about a single person, so a, a little girl in Uganda, mm. and talked about her situation in terms of access to clean water, access to food or fortified food, that people are more likely to donate for a single person, for a single story, than if you told them that 10 people were in that situation, 10 children. So there's something about personalising it for people. And, you know, extending that, if there was just one person begging on Swanson Street, you're much more likely to give money to that one person. But you look up and you'll see tens of beggars lined mm. up Swanson Street. And so... And, you, and I suppose you're not the only person walking past them as well. So there's a bystander effect as well, which is what we talk about. So mm. if everyone is walking past a person who's begging on the street, even if there is one person, mm. then you're not going to feel as compelled as if you were the only person there. Mm. The other thing I was going to say was that Peter Singer 
Mm. Uh, seems to be focusing on charities in Africa. Yes. Would it be true? Well, I think the charities that they focus on for this organisation mm. and for Give Well and, and those sorts of organisations that look at effectiveness and efficacy mm-hmm. in, um, in these sorts of charities focus on the third and fourth world because that's where they can get the most value from the dollars spent in relation to charity work. Right. So, you know, a lot of people would, might say we should be spending our charity dollars in our own backyard. You know, we, we obviously have a problem with homelessness at the moment. Yeah. And for a lot of us, you know, we have a certain amount of money that we could donate. And many people would say, well, you know, we should solve our own problems before we go messing around in other countries and solving problems that either should be solved by our government or their government. Like, it seems strange. You know, some of these African countries like Nigeria should be able to solve their own problems. Well, they're careful in terms of where they provide aid, in terms of whether it's a completely failed state and mm. whether the aid's going to reach the person. There's often misconceptions around how much our governments provide. I think America and uh, Australia, their aid budgets, um, international aid budgets are quite low. But The other thing about it is that this effective altruism movement is cold-eyed and clinical in terms of its scientific approach, so they're kind of bypassing those feelings. Peter Singer in his book gives examples of millionaires who donate within their community and run all these great humanitarian organisations that help poorer people within their own community. But their contention is simply that if you're going to donate money, and all people are the same... So being in Uganda doesn't make you any less worthy than being in Australia or America or anywhere else. They're not non-people. That the greatest effect you can have is by donating to these charities that are working in the third world because that's where you will save a life, potentially. I like his comment during this interview that he would like wealthy people, like the very wealthy, Mm. to uh, be vying for the most effective, for the most generous philanthropist, yes. rather than vying for who's got the biggest mansion and the most yes. number of luxury cars. But yes. it's a, a great interview, and I think people will enjoy it, Sure, uh, your interview with Peter Singer. So let's hear it now. Dr Mark Halloran in conversation with Professor Peter Singer. Hello, Peter. I wanted to thank you very much for participating in this as well. Um, I know that your time's valuable. Happy to talk to you. Sure. I read your book, uh, The Life You Can Save, which is the basis of your foundation. And I was reminded, because of my background in psychology, of an article I read during my undergraduate degree, which was entitled, There Is No Such Thing As True Altruism. And I know that you touched on this in your book, and I wonder what your thoughts were on that. Yeah, well, uh, coincidentally, I'm teaching a class at Princeton at the moment, and I'm just speaking to the class, two people who have both donated a kidney to a stranger, two people who decided that because they knew that the chances of them needing two kidneys is very small, uh, one of them said, you know, roughly one in 4,000, whereas there are lots of people who have to live on dialysis, which is a pretty low-quality life and have a shorter lifespan than they would if they could get a kidney donated. They both, quite independently, they didn't know each other, decided that they would donate one of their kidneys to essentially the next person on the waiting list. One of them particularly selected a hospital in his city, Philadelphia, that serves African-Americans mostly. 
I find it very hard to see how what they're doing is not altruistic. Uh, it's really difficult to see any other motivation for it. And I think they're two of many examples of people who do act with genuine altruism. You mentioned the philosopher Hobbes, but the psychological research, um, Straub from 1977, the psychologists within social psychology tend to talk about the private rewards that occur when someone is altruistic. So it may be that empathy itself is the removal. If I'm able to effectively empathise, I can remove the negative feelings of the distress of the other person, or I can have positive feelings about myself that I'm a good person and that they deem to be self-interest. Yes, well, firstly, I would say I don't regard that as self-interest. I think the fact that people feel empathy for others and want to help them is a very desirable pro-social kind of attitude that they have to other people. And I think it's completely different from the attitude that people have when they want to either you know, gain material wealth or simply thinking of becoming famous or something of that sort. So I think to, to say that they're both acting in terms of self-interest is at best misleading, if not simply inaccurate. I think we ought to understand the notion of being altruistic as having that concern and empathy for others. But in addition, actually, one of the two people who was speaking to my class today described himself as autistic. Um, autistic people are not famous for their empathy for others, to put it mildly. And he felt that, you know, um, that if he hadn't donated, he wouldn't have troubled him greatly. It might have occasionally crossed his mind, but it wouldn't have you know, been a, a serious problem for him to relate to. But he simply thought, having had the issue raised in a philosophy class, interestingly enough, about how much we ought to do to help others, he thought that that was the right thing to do, and that was why he acted. I mean, even though the risks are quite small of having surgery to remove a, a kidney, and even the lifelong risks are quite small to the to the donor, you found it quite an extreme thing to do. I do, actually. You're right. And I suppose, you know, it's to me, it's the undergoing an operation and the recovery time of that still seems to me harder to do than giving away even quite significant sums of money. And it's a little hard for me to justify that or explain it. But it is, I guess, an, an emotional response to the idea of going into a hospital and having a procedure like that, which is not related to any necessity of my own health or well-being in the direct sense. Does it make you feel uncomfortable if someone got that idea from your philosophy class, that they would go and do something that may be, in a way, sort of extreme? Well, I think it's extreme in the sense of being an extremely good thing to do. And uh, so it doesn't trouble me. I think they've clearly helped somebody else very much. And although I may know, I don't see the person who they've helped. I do see the student who's done it. I think that that's a very good thing. And I'm, you know, my problem is more that I haven't done it myself. It's not that I'm troubled by the fact that my way of thinking has led someone to do something that's extremely good. Does it trouble you that you don't feel like, at this point, would want to do it yourself? Yes, um, it does trouble me to some extent. I suppose it's not the only thing that I don't do that I think it would be right to do. I do give away a significant part of my income, but I could certainly give more. I still live very comfortably, and there would be more that I could give that would help people in low-income countries. So that troubles me as well. I suppose I've stopped trying to be a, a saint or a perfect person. If Perhaps, perhaps I never really did try, but I'm, yes. I'm, I'm comfortable with where I am. I know that I'm doing perhaps more good than most people in the community for the world in general. So I don't dwell on the shortcomings as much as thinking about, you know, yes, can I do a bit more still? Um, so I, 
I do want to do more, but I don't worry about the fact that I'm probably, you know, well, virtually certainly never going to be doing everything that I could be doing. Well, I was interested in this from a psychological perspective and conceptually as well. The logical positives assert that moral judgments cannot really be true or false and that each system of morality that we develop, and I remember reading this about this in the um, historian uh, Yuval Noah Harari's Sapiens, that the social story or narrative that we tell ourselves in terms of ethics or morality is essentially a fiction. And so the, the Charter of Human Rights is, is a fiction. It's not something that's immutable, um, but it's something that's agreed upon by a society. And so I wondered what you thought of that. Uh, that's not my view. I can't speak for Yuval Harari, and I can't say whether you've correctly interpreted him, but certainly not my view that there are no objective truths in morality. You know, certainly there is variation in morality across different societies, um, but then there's variation across different societies in beliefs about the origin of the earth or um, you know, the development of different life forms. And I think that some of those views are false and there is essentially one view that is correct on that question. So the fact that there's diversity in moral views across different cultures isn't itself enough to show that there's no truth to be discovered. Uh, I do think that certainly some of these moral views we can be pretty confident are not correct. Sorting out exactly which is the correct one might be harder and it's certainly harder to get agreement on it but it may still be the case that there is one true moral view i suppose i thought that you know utilitarianism in terms of looking at the consequences it, it's not to say that the fictions that when we talk about fictions like whether it's a system of ethical or moral conduct in mesopotamia or the caste system in india where people are treated differently based upon a particular system that's developed by a society because you can tell a lot of things from consequences whether you feel as though the consequence is good or not good yes certainly i would judge those systems by their consequences and i would judge the ones you mentioned as, as not good and it's significant that if you're talking about the caste system in india of course a lot of enlightened people have opposed the caste system in India very strongly, and there's you know, been moves against that, even if it still lingers, and I think it lingers more in less educated areas, rural areas perhaps, than it does in more better educated urban areas. So I do see that as something that will recede with, with more education of, uh, of the population, and I think that in itself indicates something about Things are not just relative, it's not just that one system is as good as another, but, but when people develop a broader view of the world and better understanding of the origins of beliefs that people have, um, they reject this view that uh, you know, people are born into certain castes and therefore should uh, have certain professions and uh, not have others. That's seen as based on myths and as contrary to basic notions of fairness or justice or what will have the best consequences for society that's why cultural relativism fails because you can certainly judge things by their outcomes of whether they're good or not the thing that i was interested in in the core of this argument was about morality i know you've talked about the right to life people in relation to abortion and the idea of sanctity of life as being a unscientific construct and i was wondering whether morality itself was an unscientific construct if you're talking about you know views about morality and what's right or wrong, it's not a scientific construct in the sense of something that is empirically provable. You, you can't run experiments as to whether utilitarianism is the right view rather than 
uh, let's say, John Rawls' theory of justice or, or something else, it might still be that it's scientific in the sense that you know, the way that Germans, for example, use the word Wissenschaft, which is a broader concept than our uh, empirical science. So it's, it's something that can be a subject of serious study and scholarship and perhaps out of the argument that one can have in philosophical uh, discussions of the nature of morality, you can get to at least better moral views, views that are closer to the truth, and perhaps you can get to the true moral view, but certainly you can find reasons to reject a lot of moral views that are clearly not the right moral view. I'd read about you saying that the left needed to take more of a Darwinian evolutionary perspective in terms of understanding, I suppose, antisocial and pro-social behaviour, or that you sought to step out of that and take the perspective of the universe. And I wondered how you were able to do that. Yeah, okay. So there's, there's two different things that you've mentioned there. One is our understanding of human nature and of what political and social arrangements are likely to work when implemented in a society of human beings who have the kind of nature that we do. And to understand that nature, I think we do need to understand it from an evolutionary perspective. That is, I think that uh, an evolutionary perspective helps to explain some things about the way we are and some things about what works. You know, why, for example, Marx was basically wrong about what would happen if you change the economic basis of society so that there was no more private property. And so I think the left needs to understand that to the extent that it still holds some of those views that reject an evolutionary understanding of human nature. It needs to get rid of those views and to try to work out how to produce a fair and just society with human beings as they are. So that's the first point about, you know, you're basically referring to the little book I wrote called The Darwinian Left. But then you mentioned this point about taking the point of view of the universe, which is a phrase that I've taken from the 19th century utilitarian Henry Sidgwick and uh, used as the title of a book that I co-authored with a Polish philosopher, Karagina de Lazari Radek, uh, which is essentially a, a study of Sidgwick's views and an attempt to put them into a, a modern context. So I do think that it's possible to take the point of view of the universe, and I should make clear that this is a metaphor. Uh, I don't believe, and Sidgwick didn't believe, that the universe actually has a point of view. The universe is, is not a person, not the kind of thing that can have a point of view. But you and I, given that we have capacities for reasoning, can look at how things are from a point of view that Sidgwick was referring to when he talked about taking the point of view of the universe. That is, not my point of view, not your point of view, not the point of view of Australians or uh, Russians or whoever else it might be, not even necessarily the point of view of a human being, but the point of view that can look at the universe as a whole and make judgments about what would be better or worse from that universal perspective. And I do think that that's possible. We can do that, and, and we, can, we certainly get different outcomes than if we look at things and, and act just from our own personal point of view or from a national point of view or some other group like that well yes it's stepping outside of a, things that are like a nationalistic framework but i don't know whether you can divorce it from our evolutionary biology the well i don't know the desire to do that 
So the desire to do that is another question, right? And, yes. and you're, you're correct that our evolutionary biology probably is something that counts against the idea that we will ever get, or ever as long time, that we will soon be able to expect that most people will take the point of view of the universe. I don't think we should expect that. I think that's very unlikely. So that's why, as I say, we do have to reckon with people as they are. But nevertheless, if we're trying to work out what's the right thing to do, which you know, is still a basic question, even if we don't expect everybody to do the right thing, knowing what's the right thing to do might help us to make social arrangements that will be closer to ending up with the right outcome. So I think if we're doing that, then we can sit around and talk about this, and I do this with students and colleagues, and discuss what we think of as the right thing to do from that universal perspective. You're listening to Dr. Mark Halloran in conversation with Peter Singer, Professor of Bioethics, Princeton University. It's sort of like what Noam Chomsky talks about when you think about other people in other countries, they become non-people, and it feels like your book is about overcoming that. Uh, certainly I want to overcome those barriers that uh, we see people in other countries as non-people or as people who in some way don't count very much to us. Um, yes, I think I think we should be thinking much more globally in that respect, and we should be thinking about what we can do effectively to help them. So you're right that part of my book is overcoming that barrier, sort of stopping at the borders of our society. And the other part is this question of gathering evidence and working out what are the most effective things that we can do that will best help others. I know you mentioned that you feel as though the modern left has to move away from some of the Marxist ideas, and I know you've written about that because in your book you talk about world poverty having fallen from 34% in 1993 to 10.7%, and it feels like you attribute that to some extent to perhaps democratisation and the spread of capitalism. Would that be fair? Yes, I think democratization plays a role. I think it's not necessarily big capital, but I think the spread of markets rewarding people who are efficient producers and allowing innovation and enterprise is something that has certainly helped. And, you know, there are also clearly scientific advances that have helped in understanding how to put people to avoid illnesses and helping them to get information about the world. I think, for example, the spread of mobile phones has helped to reduce poverty because it's meant that people in rural areas who previously were at the mercy of outsiders telling them, you know, what the price was for the grains or vegetables that they were producing now have access to instant information as to what their product is fetching in some market far away. So, you know, there's a lot of factors that have I think, help to reduce global poverty. But I think the freeing up of markets is one thing, but there are many others as well. Well, I feel like the perhaps the interaction between effective international aid and the ability to support domestic political stability in the place where you're providing aid, those seem to be very important factors. Yes, certainly you're quite right that uh, political stability reasonably good governance, and very few governments are perfect, but reasonably good governance. Uh, the absence of war, of course, war, whether civil war or wars with, with other nations, is a, a terrible destroyer of wealth and uh, casts people into poverty. So um, you know, despite the, the headlines of particular wars, whether they're Syria or the Congo or somewhere like that might get, the world has been relatively free of, of wars in the 21st and, and late 20th centuries. So... Uh, I think all of those things do help. 
Well, I think you also address some of the misconceptions around the way that we think about poverty as well. I mean, for most of human history, the population size hasn't really exceeded 1 billion, but in the Oh, well, perhaps before the 20th century, you know, and subsequently it's gone up to about 7.9 billion. But actually the living conditions for a lot of people around the world, even in the, the third and the fourth world, have, have increased and we're experiencing the best living conditions that we've ever experienced. That's generally true, yeah. Yeah, and a lot of people don't realise that. I think it's an important point. People seem to think that they read some of the headlines and they think, oh, things are getting worse. You know, poverty is always there, but but all the indicators show that that's not true. That poverty is reducing. That the number of children dying before their fifth birthday has halved pretty much in just about twelve years. In the time when I wrote the first edition of the Life You Can Save, I was writing it in two thousand and eight. The figure I used there for the number of deaths of children under five was something like nine point eight million. In the updated edition that I will be at by the end of this year, it's down to 5.3. So that's pretty impressive progress too. I felt like the purpose of this interview to some extent wasn't to try and argue against the ideas or the idea of effective altruism, but for me to act as sort of a devil's advocate. No, it's, it's definitely good to put objections because I'm sure some of your listeners will have those objections in their mind and if uh, if you put them, it gives me a chance to answer them. And I think that one of the most important things for me was addressing the psychological barriers. When I read your book, I had to investigate those within myself. As I worked my way through, they, they came up. And I thought we could talk about the psychological barriers that stop people from giving to people in the third and fourth world. Right, yes. Well, there are, there are a number of barriers, and sort of one of them, in a way, we've talked about the, uh, the false belief that everything is going badly and that we're not making progress, I think, is a deterrent because people are less likely to give if they think that it's not solving the problem. People like to think that uh, the problem is one that they can contribute to solving. That it's not futile. Exactly, that's right. Yes, it's the futility problem. And that's something that's been documented by psychological research, that if you tell people, for example, that there are 100 people in need and for $10,000 they can save them all, then people will say that that would be you know, something they would want to do. If you tell them that there are 1,000 people in need and for $10,000 they can save, let's say, 400 of them, they'll perhaps be less inclined to do that, even though from an economist's point of view, they're getting much better value there. They're saving lives at a quarter of the cost, but they're focusing on the fact that there are a thousand people in need and that there are 600 that they can't save. So they find it less satisfying, less rewarding, I suppose, to put the resources towards saving 400 when there's 600 you can't save rather than put them to saving just 100 if you can save all of the 100 who need to be saved. Another issue I think here is what's known as the bystander effect, that if people see that other people are not helping, they're less likely to help themselves. So that's been documented also in research that if people see someone else helping, they'll join in. If other people are not helping, then they're more likely to sit there themselves. So we feel this, of course, there are people who don't help with problems like helping people in need, and you know, we're therefore less likely to. And related to that is, is the idea that we shouldn't talk about our giving, we shouldn't talk about helping, that um, somehow it's like boasting or not nice to mention to other people that you're giving to uh, to charities. but And Christianity, I know you talked about that. Yeah. yeah. 
Yes, that's something that is in the Bible that uh, you know Jesus is quoted as saying, uh, when you give alms, you know, don't blow your trumpet. But that's somehow boastful. And of course, he says, you know, if they have their reward already, meaning they have their reward on earth because people sort of praise them for it. Whereas if you give without boasting, you'll get supposedly much greater reward in heaven. But I think it's bad policy if what we want to do is to help more people because if people talk more about giving and it's out in the open and they know that other people are giving, particularly their peers and others that they respect, then people are much more likely to give themselves. And I know that you mentioned Bill Gates talking about the Koran, talking where it verse quotes about essentially doing your philanthropy in public so it encourages others. I feel like the downside of that is the scepticism that it engenders in other people about your motivations. About your motives, yes. Mm. I mean, I suppose that is true. People will say, oh, you know, they're doing it to be known or whatever, but I still think the, the evidence suggests that it does encourage people to give, and that's the most important thing. So I'm still happy that people like Gates do talk about what they're doing. And, uh, for example, Forbes magazine, which you know, is most famous for having its rich list of the richest people in America, and now also has a sort of most generous list of the people who give the most. And I think uh, I'd love to see the same kind of competition as to who gets to the top of the rich list being there for who gets to the top of the most generous list. Well, it feels like that your work and the work of the foundation in relation to those people who are billionaires and, and the, the wealthiest 0.001% is around making that idea of philanthropy part of the status symbol about being rich. Yeah, yeah, that's certainly right, yeah. yeah it would be much better if people got status from being the most effective altruists rather than simply from being the richest or from having the largest yacht or uh, wearing the most expensive watch on their wrist or whatever else it might be. You're listening to Dr Mark Halloran in conversation with Peter Singer, Professor of Bioethics, Princeton University. Going back to the bystander effect, I know this comes from the 60s uh, research that was done after the murder of a woman in New York called Kitty Genovese where essentially over a few hours she was stabbed to death on a New York street and no one did anything because they expected that somebody else would have made the call to police. Yes, that's right. Uh, she was, it was actually not on the street but in the courtyard of an apartment building but there were apparently several people in the apartments who heard her cry out, um, maybe even saw something going on and thought that, well, somebody must be calling the police and so they didn't bother doing it. Yes, that certainly caused a big stir when it was reported and people started looking at themselves and psychologists started doing research on the bystander effect and the, the various factors that might lead people to intervene and, and not to intervene. And I think this is one of the big problems, again, also with uh, our giving to people in extreme poverty that we were saying you know, that people need to be able to see that others are helping and not just think that nobody does this. I feel like that was the purpose of your thought experiment with the child in the pond. Uh, not exactly, I think. I think the purpose was to show that if you did not help somebody who you could you know, help uh, easily, not at zero cost, but at a relatively low cost to yourself, that most people would think that was wrong if it was a case where the child was immediately in front of you and you could see the child drowning in the shallow pond and you knew you could rescue the child and you knew there was no one else who was going to do that. And I used that example in order to get people to recognize that there are things that 
it's wrong not to do. That It's not only that you live a good life if you don't harm others, if you don't cheat or lie or kill or maim or whatever else it might be. That's not enough to live a good life. There can be circumstances in which you're not living ethically if you don't help someone, even if you have no responsibility for that person being in need and that person is not your child or anything like that. And then I wanted to move from the case of the child in front of you to the case of the child in a low-income country on the other side of the world and argue that that still applies, that uh, even if you can't see the child, if you know that you have the ability to help the child, perhaps through an effective charity, then it's not really morally significantly different from the case of the child in the pond. I feel like from a psychological perspective, and this was the way that I approached it, was that the issue with the pond thought experiment was that when you move the example from the child in the pond to a child in another country, you actually have the bystander effect ad infinitum because people can essentially imagine an an infinite number of other people that could possibly be helping and people that are in better positions to help taking that on. Do you see what I mean? Oh, you do certainly have the bystander effect. Yes, that is correct. But I think, again, the bystander effect explains the psychology of why people do not act. It doesn't justify not acting. I think we can recognize in the case of Kitty Genovese, who you mentioned, that people were wrong in not calling the police when you know, possibly the police would have come in time to save her. And it's not an excuse for the fact that, well, there are other people who heard her cries or something and they didn't do anything either. That isn't enough to say, fine, okay, then you didn't do anything wrong. You still did do something wrong. And I think we ought to have that thinking about people in extreme poverty, where in fact there are many people who are doing something, but of course it's true that there are even more who are doing nothing or only trivial amounts. I guess psychologically the issue is the diffusion of responsibility as well because it's someone that they are not in direct relation to and I know you talk about the psychological research that people are more likely to give if you give them the photo of one child in need in a fourth world country rather than the photos of two children you would think that the giving would increase sort of exponentially but it doesn't the people are really their empathy is really geared towards that individual relationship it seems, to some extent. Yes, well, certainly if you have an identifiable individual, that, again, makes people more likely to donate to help an identifiable individual rather than, say, you know, if I I give to the Against Malaria Foundation, which is a highly effective organisation that is distributing bed nets to people in regions where children die from malaria, um, I will never know which child my donation saved. I may know statistically that it is extremely likely that my donation saved a child or maybe saved more than one child, depending on how much I gave. But I can't identify the individual who I saved. And that is, for many people, unfortunately, a kind of deterrent or at least makes it harder for them to actually work themselves up to giving. But uh, again, ethically, we know that they're all real children. Every child is a unique individual. So the fact that we can't see the child, I believe, doesn't really let us off the hook morally. It does make sense why organisations like World Vision have uh, donations and becoming a sponsor for a specific person or a specific child and because, the, because they know that that's going to be sort of effective at least in attracting the donation, if not effective necessarily in um, bettering the life of the greatest number of people. Right, yes. So that's another thing that um, I think, again, people need to be aware of. They need to be aware that some organizations will play on their the emotional pull and, you know, understandably, and in the sense if the organizations are still doing some positive good, 
it's not necessarily bad that they do that in order to get the largest amount of donations. But still, I think if we're aware of that and we think for ourselves that we want to do the most good we can with however much it is that we're able to donate, then it's better to look for organisations that really are the most effective, that are getting us the best value for our dollar, even if that's something that isn't directly pulling on our emotions in the way that organisations that present a single child and tell us we can help that child are pulling on our emotions. It feels like the focus then is moving away from the idea that we donate or we help or that we act in some sort of altruistic way because of empathy and because of the effective system and moving towards more of a cognitive appraisal about it. Yes, that's reasonable. I think we are trying to at least include a cognitive appraisal. I wouldn't say we're moving away from the idea of empathy. Uh, Some sort of idea of empathy is perhaps for most people still going to be basic to giving. They're going to be thinking about the people they're helping and about their needs, whether they can identify them or not. But what is important is that the cognitive aspects are involved, that you are thinking about, you know, what am I doing here? Is this the right choice? What's the evidence to say that it is the right choice? How good, how reliable is that evidence? Those ought to be part of any decision to give any kind of significant sum to a non-profit organisation. It feels like it's one of the most important things in terms of efficacy and effectiveness, but it still probably has to be driven by the effective system to some extent, that you still have to feel something to, to be motivated to do it. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. pretty much for everybody. Most people, not, maybe not quite everybody, but for most people, you certainly still have to have the effective systems operating. You have to feel something. And then from feeling something, you say, yes, but is this really the best thing to do? Yeah. I mean, we've talked about the entire purpose of this organisation is effective altruism. So money being spent in places like you've mentioned the Against Malaria Foundation and uh, I think obstetric fistulas where incredibly good things can be done in for people who are in extreme need and malaria is one of the biggest killers in the world for very low amounts of money and I think one of the, the cynical and skeptical views that tends to come up is the idea that I don't really know when I donate this money towards an organisation, whether it's going to be effective. And I don't know, how do we address that? How do we address that concern? Well, fortunately, the internet has made that so much simpler to address because you can go online and you can look at the organisation we're talking about, uh, thelifeyoucansave.org, and there's an Australian branch of it, so thelifeyoucansave.org.au, and you can find a list of, of recommended charities that have been assessed by one or other of the best organisations that do these assessments that will rigorously check out the organisations that are being recommended and only recommend those that do check out as being highly effective. The Life You Can Save is not the only place to look. There is an American uh, organisation called GiveWell, which you can also look at, which you get a lot of research from. But particularly if you're interested in focusing on Australian charities, then the life you can save.org is a way to do that and a way to do it effectively and incidentally also to, to get tax deductibility for it, which you won't always get if you're giving to organisations recommended by American charity assessors. I think it's the most common objection that you hear, essentially. I mean, one of the things that springs to my mind is the Taliban refusing UN aid to Afghani citizens, you know, People get this idea of futility. They think, well, I donate the money, but does it actually get to the people? Is it intercepted by despotic governments, things like that? 
that certainly happens. Happens perhaps rather more with government aid programs, but it can occasionally happen with uh, non-government organisations. But yeah, it's one of the great moral dilemmas, if you like, of aid programs that sometimes some countries are so hard to work in that you really cannot be confident that you're doing a lot of good. And then uh, tragically, you have to go and work somewhere else. Uh, if you're not doing good, then uh, there's no point in working in a country where the conditions are so bad and uh, things are so corrupt or so dangerous to your workers that uh, you can't say to your donors, uh, we can have a high probability of doing good or we have a high value for you know, what we're achieving. So I think sometimes you have to say we need to work in an environment where we can be more confident that we are achieving what we want to achieve. It's what we sort of talked about before, which is the interaction between international aid and the political stability of the place where you're providing the aid. But I mean, lots of the places are politically unstable, aren't they? I mean, they're essentially, they'd be classified failed states. Well, certainly some, but, you know, there are plenty that are not failed states where there is a reasonably stable government and the governments will vary as to how good they are, how effectively they're working. But um, even in countries where nobody would think the government is a great government, you know, if you have a history of working there and being able to get the aid to the people who need it, that's a good thing. And I think, say, for example, talking again about the Against Malaria Foundation, they're now working in what's officially known as the Democratic Republic of Congo, and that's been a dangerous environment at times and places um, in terms of of civil war there, but they're working in regions that are stable and they're able to distribute the beds uh, to the people who need them and people are using them. They they check, they have independent auditors going around seeing that where they've distributed, the distribution has indeed been made and that the bed nets are being used properly. So, yeah, you can't sort of dismiss a country because you hear a bad story about something that happened there, perhaps it happened even some years ago. These are large countries and there may be some areas where you wouldn't be able to do this, but large parts of the country where you can. You're listening to Dr Mark Halloran in conversation with Peter Singer, Professor of Bioethics, Princeton University. Do effective altruistic organisations risk over-corporatisation, either now or in the future? Well, perhaps in the future that will happen, but um, you know, many of these organisations that are recommended by the Life You Can Save are really quite small. Take the one we're talking about again, the Against Malaria Foundation was started by a guy called Rob Mather in England, and basically for a long time there were just two people working on that organisation and they were able to do a great deal of good just at that level. They've gone a little bit beyond that now, but uh, they're still not a large organisation in terms of employees, in terms of having offices and so on. You take the Life You Can Save Itself, which is an organisation which now employs, I'm not exactly sure, maybe it employs 10 people or something like that, or many of them part-time, let's say a full-time equivalent of 10, but it, it doesn't actually have any offices. People are working out of their own homes, connected online, obviously, and just occasionally they'll meet an uh, online meeting or perhaps you know, once a year or something they'll meet in person, but it's a very uncorporatized, very streamlined kind of organisation with minimal costs of operating. It still feels like a grassroots organisation, essentially. Yes, I think that can be seen that way. And one of the things that you can see, you can go online and look at its annual report, is that the ratio of dollars spent uh, by the organisation to dollars moved to highly effective charities is, uh, I think in the last report, it was something like 
$1 spent on administration for every $13 moved to effective charities. So it keeps the costs very low, very lean, and does a lot of good with the money that it does spend. And there's transparency, obviously. I feel like this is a barrier for people in terms of giving as well is that the idea of where that money goes within a corporation. So I know that over time, even things like breast cancer research, so foundations that raise money for breast cancer research, and we had Pink Ribbon Day and things like that, started to read a development of a a sort of a scepticism and a cynicism around where the money went. These were some of the most effective organisations in raising money for breast cancer. And now there are a multitude of therapies for breast cancer, but it actually took money away from other areas of research for even more aggressive types of cancer, cervical cancer and things like that. That's why I wondered about that danger, that you can start to validate it back to yourself. You can say, well, we're growing. We need to put more money into the corporation side of it so that we can do even greater good. Yes, uh, it can happen. It certainly does happen sometimes that uh, then you develop a staff and your main problem then is to raise funds in order to keep the staff employed and you perhaps are not putting as high a ratio into the actual projects that your programs that you're trying to support. So that's what people need to look at really and that's what these independent assessors will do. They will drop organisations, Life You Can Save or, or Give Well will, will drop organisations if they're no longer seen as producing a really cost-effective return on the donations given to them. That's all part of the picture. So I know that these organisations in the places they work, like uh, Kenya, and I think there's Give Directly does uh, is ex- experimenting essentially with basic universal income, that they do random controlled trials. Do the assessors go into those places on the ground to assess those trials? Do you have independent assessors going in to do that? Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. In fact, the trials are not conducted by Give Directly. The trials are conducted by other organisations that are specialists in doing that research and doing those trials. Yes. So they tend to be academic uh, organisations that have an interest in those questions and the researchers will conduct the trials and will publish the results of those trials. Ideally now they announce the trial in advance because something that's been found to happen in not just in this area but in science in general is that People will publish results when they get the results they want, and otherwise, if they do a trial, then they just won't publish it, and you know nobody will know that the trial was done and didn't get the results they want. A publication bias. Yes, exactly, publication bias. So the gold standard organisations will, um, you know, including Give Directly, will say we're trialling this basic income scheme. We're going to do a, a randomised controlled trial on it. The results will be available in you know, whatever it is, two years or something like that. And uh, so they're putting themselves on the line. And if the trial is done and the results don't support what they're doing, then they're going to have to rethink that. And all of their donors are going to know about it because they've told the donors in advance that we're doing this. So I think that's the way in which organisations should work. And they should be prepared from time to time to say, well, we tried this, but it didn't work. So we have to look for something better to put our money into. Well, I think that was my next question. I think you essentially answered it. But I... I spoke to the director of the Centre for Open Science, Tim Arrington, because I used to work as a scientist in biological research, neurodegeneration, and we talked about those very issues within research, that essentially this centre was started by John Arnold, who was a venture capitalist, who's mentioned in your book, the Laura and John Arnold Foundation. Um, what they were trying to find out was whether therapies developed were actually effective and they they found that the translation rate from animal to clinical trials was incredibly poor and what they found was essentially a replication crisis in science so it is good to know that there are independent bodies conducting the trials because I think they also do research in the 
not-for-profit sector in terms of welfare programs and things like that in the US. And it's the same problem. What happens if organisations get the opportunities to simply validate their own research? It's a confirmation bias. Absolutely, yes. That's something that I think people are now increasingly aware of and they're trying to go against that. And as I say, there are organisations that have very publicly said, we tried this, we thought it looked good, but the results came in that it wasn't good. So you know, they've actually told charity assessors like GiveWell that we're recommending them and particular programs to say, uh, you should take us off the list because this hasn't worked out as we wanted it to. I wonder if there's any plans to have develop relationships between these effective altruistic organisations and things like the Centre for Open Science. That their missions seem to be comparable. They certainly do. Yes, I can't answer that question about that particular centre, but I'm, I'm sure that people doing this kind of assessment are aware of the debate that has gone on in psychology in particular about uh, replication of research and they're aware of publication bias and uh, trying to make sure that they're not involved in similar kinds of things. The other thing that I wanted to talk to you about was I got a sense from your book I felt like there could be a hierarchy in terms of the most good that you could do. So, I mean, it seems like a lot of the organisations you're talking about, uh, Oxfam, the Fred Hollows Foundation, Give Directly, they're very, very specific targets. They're not just, well, we're going to go in and uh, end starvation or something like that. They're, they've got very, very specific targets and the people that give towards them, it's because they think that that's really important. But is there a hierarchy, do you think, in terms of where you can best and most effectively spend your money? Well, um, so I, I mean, the Life Science doesn't doesn't uh, doesn't rank it's the organisations it recommends. No, I, I, I meant in terms of principles. So I was thinking that, well, let's say you you quite often write about um, the effects of climate change and uh, in t- particularly in the next hundred years or so that this is going to lead to you know oceans rising, crop failures, it's going to affect some of the world's poorest people. I mean, so it's, it would seem to me perhaps the most effective altruism may be to, be to be donating money towards science that develops really effective solar, wind, kinetic energy, things like that. Yeah, certainly. I mean, uh, the Life You Can Save has, has thought, still is thinking about uh, whether to put any climate-related uh, organisations as part of the, the recommendations for organisations that are also helping people in extreme poverty because, of course, climate change will hit people in poverty worse. But the other thing you have to consider is how much is already going into these areas and there are very large sums of money going into, into clean energy and so you have to think about the marginal impact that further donations will make as compared with areas where there's very little money going into that. Uh, and so that, that's been a factor that we have to consider. And at least at the moment, we don't recommend a, a climate-related organisation. But, but that could change. We're, we're still actively looking at that area. I uh, suppose it may change over the coming months. I know you talked about the, the estimate that, it, that developed countries should have something like $80 billion uh, per annum going towards uh, essentially future-proofing um, countries that are in need countries that have third and fourth world populations um, against uh, some of the impacts of climate change. Yeah, I mean, in a way, that's 
that's something that governments ought to be doing because they should be recognising their responsibility for having caused climate change. The, the, the industrialised nations that have been putting vastly more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere per capita than any of the low-income nations, and so they should be recognising. In fact, they sort of have recognised in, in various treaties that they have a responsibility for this. They just mostly haven't put up the money that would follow from that recognition. You're listening to Dr Mark Halloran in conversation with Peter Singer, Professor of Bioethics, Princeton University. I would like to say just something about the forthcoming new edition of The Life You Can Save. Oh, yes, yes. um, Mention that. So I have completely updated and revised The Life You Can Save for what we're calling a 10th anniversary edition. It was first published in 2009, and that will be released worldwide on December the 3rd. It's going to be available free of charge online by going to thelifeyoucansave.org or thelifeyoucansave.org.au, either of those. And you'll be able to either download it as an ebook or you'll be able to download an audio version which will have chapters read by a number of celebrities. One of my favourites is Paul Simon, at least to my generation, very famous as a part of Simon and Garfunkel, is reading a chapter. Mike Schuer, who people who watch The Good Place, the TV series, which has quite a lot of ethics in it, has written a foreword and is also reading his foreword. And uh, Kristen Bell, who's acting in that, as well as having other acting roles, is reading another chapter. So I think we have a, a really interesting audio book for people who like audio books and a fully updated e-book. And I hope that people will go online and get that once it's available and, and spread it around because you know, we're not charging for it because we essentially want as many people to read it as possible. There will also be, if people prefer a hard copy, there will be a hard copy book available in bookstores, hopefully around that date. But uh, of course, you can't uh, make hard copies free. So there will be a charge for the hard copies. Okay. Thanks very much for your time, Peter. Yeah, I'm very happy to uh, be able to reach your listeners um, with the things we've been talking about. We would appreciate you taking the time out. Thank you. Okay, and you have a good day. And there it was, Mark Halloran in conversation with Peter Singer. There's a lot there for us to think about, I think, Mark. Yes, I think so. You know, earlier on I was saying that it made me feel guilty. And you had an interesting comment. You said guilt must have a purpose. Mm. Well, I think that guilt is very instructive. So it has a purpose. So if, if someone doesn't feel guilt at all, they're probably a sociopath. It's probably fairly well correlated with antisocial personality disorder, Mm. impulsivity and the inability to empathise with others. Guilt teaches you if you hurt someone else or Mm. do the wrong thing by someone else, then you should probably try and make amends for that somehow. It's sort of a combination between anxiety and self-punishment. The problem with guilt is if it becomes generalised. And I think human beings, because they do have innate ability to empathise, are very susceptible to feeling guilt. And so if the guilt is sort of a generalised guilt... Like Christian guilt? Christian guilt's a really good example. So Jesus died on the cross for me. Mm. And therefore, when I was raised as a Roman Catholic, you know, he died for your sins. You're a sinner and, uh, and he had to give up his life for you. Sure. I'll give you an example too yes. of specific guilt. When I go to the supermarket... And I oh, want no. to get half a dozen oranges. Yes. You know how they have those plastic bags in a roll and you've got to rip it off? Mm. And whenever I rip off the plastic bag and put the oranges in it, right. I feel guilt. Do you? 
Yeah. Because of the plastic bag. Yeah, yeah. Right. But the very next time I go in, I do exactly the same thing. Right. Well, it's uh, obviously the amount of guilt you feel is not very motivating and you're unable to sustain it, are you, to be able to achieve behaviour change? <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think we should be serious. Sure. Next week, we'll be back again for another episode of Deep Trouble, and yes. you'll be interviewing... A continuation of the effective altruism theme. We'll be talking to Michael Fay, who's the CEO of Give Directly, which is ranked as one of the most effective aid organisations in the world and provides basic universal income as a random controlled trial in places like Uganda and Kenya. And this is one of the charities recommended in The Life You Can Save. All right. So today's interview was kind of a general look Mm. at effective altruism. So next week, we're going to be focusing in on a particular charity and seeing how it's actually done. Yes. Okay. So sounds very interesting. I hope you join us (laughs) next week. Deep Trouble is produced by Steve Charman in the studios of Maine FM, Castle, Maine. Trouble Magazine would like to thank its sponsors. Ararat Gallery Tama, Bendigo Living Art Space, Fox Galleries Melbourne, Manningham Gallery, Swan Hill Regional Art Gallery, Wangaratta Art Gallery and Western Sydney University. Thanks for your support.